Welcome to Blitzcats, an NFL Draft podcast brought to you by NFLDraftBlitz.com. And now, your hosts, Alex Kavtov and Ed Hunt. Welcome to another episode of Blitzcast. Ed and Alex back on the air. And we're going to dedicate most of this show to college football because there's a lot going on. A lot of exciting games coming up this weekend. A lot of exciting games that took place last weekend, a few upsets. But in the beginning of the show, we will leave that window open for NFL talk. And specifically, we'll talk about the Pittsburgh Steelers, Ed. Your Pittsburgh Steelers, who upset the Baltimore Ravens. It was great to see. I mean, you didn't believe it, Ed. I think you had some doubts about what... Pittsburgh Steelers can do against some of the better teams in the NFL because you mentioned that a few times that they haven't played anyone well they have now they played against the Titans and they beat them they played against the Baltimore Ravens and they beat them so the the floor is yours take it away my friend well I I just want to say yeah they've they've proven that they're a team that can win close games and they can win tough games I really like the grittiness of this Pittsburgh Steelers team I mean they they win when they win they have good team wins and I think that's really the difference and I mean you see you see them you know go through some injuries and still be able to pick it up I mean I think I think one thing that really deserves a lot of credit is you know they they play a three four front but the, the, this defensive line has really played well and guys who you know have gone down and really stepped up I mean Cam Hayward is I mean he's he's you know on the wrong side of 30 but you know and he's he's up there in age but he's still in the prime of his career and Stefan Tuitt I mean he's he's lived up to his draft billing I mean he only fell to the second round because of his injury so I mean you know he's had injury issues but Stefan Tuitt's doing well Tyson Alolu was moved to new nose tackle this year and he has been outstanding. I mean, he might be one of the top five nose tackles in the league. So I give this defensive line a lot of credit. They're getting pressure. TJ Watt is probably defensive player of the year. Yeah, I, I would say he's defensive player of the year at this point. I mean, you know, this defense has played great. And you know what? It, it helps so much this year having Ben back. They really didn't have Ben Roethlisberger all year last year. And they had to roll with Mason Rudolph, who had some injuries and Devlin Hodges, who was a rookie quarterback. Now, you know, they have Ben Roethlisberger back, and that's helping. And then, you know, they're getting help from guys like Chase Claypool. I mean, it just seems like between Juju Smith-Schuster and Chase Claypool, you can't cover them both. And I think that's what's really helping this team is that uh, this receiving core, I think, was a question mark coming into the season. Claypool has stepped up. I mean, they, they really have a one-two combination. You know, I have to give Kevin Colbert credit for the way he's drafted receivers. That's helping this team. If there's one thing that I, that I sort of question about this team is it's the it's their offensive line. I mean they're just they're just aging there and yeah they have some 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 big names. I mean they got Pouncey and DeCastro, but you know what? To be honest with you, they're they're kind of they're kind of up there in age. I mean they've played a lot of football and I mean taken a lot of bumps and bruises and and you know Ale Villanueva. I mean he's he's always he, he's been pretty consistent a lot over the years, but. You know, he's getting a little bit older, and, you know, Filer isn't having the year he had last year, and, you know, and then they have to roll with Chuck Wuma Okor for at right tackle. I mean, you know, he's 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 really, this is his first year of, you know, really being a regular starter, every down starter, um, you know, with Zach Banner down. So if they can figure out some things on the offensive line, and, you know, they can just hold it together enough on the on- offensive line, they're going to make a run at the Super Bowl. 
Wow, strong words. Well, according to Bovada Sportsbook, the Steelers, they're facing the Dallas Cowboys this week, and they're a 14-point favorite playing away at Cowboys Stadium. So that's that's going to be one of those games that should be easy breezy, as they say. Let's return to talking about the Ravens game. You know, the Steelers were down 17-7 to at halftime, but they came back. And the reason why they came back was, you mentioned, I mean, the defense has been playing really well. They forced Lamar Jackson, what, two interceptions, two fumbles? I mean, Lamar Jackson just didn't look good in the pocket, and they kept them in that pocket. They didn't give up any of those big plays on the ground. And I, I think that's what was really surprising to me because you and I talked about it, and you mentioned that the Steelers haven't had much success against Lamar Jackson in the past. Well, they, they certainly shut him down this game. I, th- I thought, you know, one of the things that played into this game was just the wet field. I mean, the, I, th- I thought the Steelers, you know, made the plays, but I mean, at, at the right time. But I mean, at the same time, I mean, this Baltimore team is a good team. I mean, they're, I mean, one of Baltimore and Pittsburgh is going to win this division. And the other one that doesn't win is going to be a wild card. So this is a good rivalry. I mean, this is a rivalry that's really been you know, present in, in my lifetime. And, you know, these teams are both very physical with each other. You know, it's bound to break out a fight or two in the game. These teams, you know, trash talk each other and we saw fights and we saw physicality and, you know, we're going to continue to see that from these two teams. I mean, I give the Steelers credit for making plays when they had to. Sometimes it's just having the ball last. And I think, I think that played a role in this game too. Well, uh, the Steelers certainly made plays on the defensive side of the ball. They forced a fumble in the red zone in the first quarter. Then Allie Highsmith came up with that pick in the beginning of the third quarter. That play swung the momentum. Were you worried when the Ravens were pounding the ball on that second-to-last drive in the fourth quarter? It looked like they weren't trusting Lamar Jackson in that situation. They were just pounding the ball with Dobbins and Gus Edwards, and they were picking up like eight, ten yards, and and all of a sudden the the Steelers made a huge stop. I think it was Isaiah Bugs who who made the play of the game late in the fourth quarter on on Jackson. He stopped them up the middle. Were you worried when they were pounding the ball at the end of the game? I, I just felt a lot of the game that. The fact that they played from behind the whole game, and you know, I mean, I mean, really, the Ravens, the Ravens were the leaders most of the game, and I mean, it really, you know, as a Steeler fan, it certainly, it certainly tests your faith. Um, so yeah, I mean, to answer your question, yeah, I was worried. Well, the Steelers made a trade. There weren't a lot of trades in the NFL, but they made a key trade. Uh, they traded for Avery Williamson. The former Titan is a 28-year-old, and obviously Devin Bush went down with an ACL tear, and they needed help at inside linebackers. So does Avery Williamson, based with his experience with the Titans and the Jets, does he step in and become that starting linebacker for the Steelers? I'm a little surprised by this trade just because, I mean, Robert Spillane has really done the job when called upon. And I I don't know if maybe they just they just want a more experienced, you know, permanent fix. But I mean, to be honest with you, I don't think I don't think this was a trade that had to be made. I disagree. I I think when it comes down to it, they're going to make that stretch run. They need Avery Williamson because he can help you on special teams. He's been down this road before. He's played in a lot of games with the Tennessee Titans. Uh, He's been in playoff games. He's been a good linebacker. I just think once he picks up that system, and I think he will because 
He's played most of his career in a 3-4 defense with the Titans and the Jets, so he knows it well. I think this is the linebacker that, that's going to play a key role in the playoffs if he stays healthy. He's still 28 years old. I mean, this isn't like he's 34 or 35. He's on his last legs. I mean, he's a good player. It's one of those pickups. I'm not saying it's, it's a pickup that just puts you in the Super Bowl, but I think it's a nice piece that could help you get there. And we're, we're talking about it right now. I mean, the Chiefs are a number one team in the NFL right now, but the Steelers and the Seahawks, they're fighting for that number two spot. So the Steelers are definitely a top three team right now as we speak. Uh, they certainly haven't surpassed the Chiefs, even though they're the lone unbeaten team left. I'm excited for you, and I'm excited for Steelers fans all around. Uh, they're having a great season, and it's good to see. I mean, you're not going to have Big Ben for too long. You're going to have him for two, three years max. And he's already talked about some retirement things in the past. So you don't know how long you're going to have him based on the quarterback situation behind him. I mean, this is relish in this situation because, like I said, you've, you've got a veteran team. As long as they stay healthy, I hope they do because they've had some injuries, just like everybody else. The, the Steelers look like a, a very good team. I, I just hope they, they keep it going and, and are not going to have that blood down next week against the, the Cowboys. All right, let's get to college football. And uh, Trevor Lawrence, he was out with coronavirus uh, versus the Boston College Eagles. And he will not play against Notre Dame Irish this week. But you know what? The, the freshman quarterback stepped up. In the beginning, he was rusty. I'm going to call him Baby Cam because that's what people are calling him right now. I mean, the guy is, what, 6'4", 6'5", 250 pounds. He had a really good game. And, and Clemson is quickly becoming a quarterback factory. He had Taj Boyd, Deshaun Watson, Trevor Lawrence, now Baby Cam. Uh, they're really stockpiling at the quarterback position. Boston College had a lead, 28-13 to at halftime, but Clemson pulled it out. Yeah, Clemson just ate away at the lead, and to be honest with you, it was like at halftime it looked like Clemson was going to get upset, and then it seemed like after the third quarter it was over. It was like it was not even a deficit. So, I mean, that's just that's just how a good team like Clemson rolls. And you know, I I mean, I give I give Travis Etienne a lot of credit. I mean, he's really helping carry that team without Trevor Lawrence. And he certainly did. And we're going to talk about Travis Etienne. We're going to put him under the scouting spotlight right now. Uh, senior running back. A lot of people, including myself, were surprised that he decided to come back for his senior year. I guess you know he wanted to win that championship and uh, and walk away on on a high note. Uh, he became ACC's all-time leading rusher this past weekend. He broke a a 42-year-old record held by NC State running back Ted Brown. So let's talk about Travis Etienne and, and what he brings to the table. Why are you excited about this prospect? And, you know, it looks like right now, I mean, nobody has really separated themselves at the running back position. I think it's going to be Travis Etienne and Najee Harris kind of battling it out for that number one running back spot. Right now, as it stands, I like Travis Etienne just a little bit more. He's prove, He's a little bit more proven. Uh, you know, he's he's carried that Clemson team. I think he's a little bit more of the body type that I mean teams are teams are looking for not so much for longevity but you know for production. He's a smaller back. 
I mean, if you look at Najee Harris, I mean, he's 6'1", 225, 230 pounds. He's built like James Conner or Todd Gurley. Travis Etienne has gotten stronger, has gotten bigger ever since his freshman season, but he still looks like a guy that you're going to use as a, as a third down back. He's not a guy that's going to carry the ball 30 times a game. He's a very valuable guy just because you can use him all over the field, and he's a terrific receiver. But I think he he looks more like an Alvin Kamara type, but he doesn't look like a guy that's going to carry the ball 25, 30 times a game like a Todd Gurley. Well, to be honest with you, I mean, in in today's NFL, I mean, a, a lot of what the running back position is is what you can do, you know, sort of going for a short pass and playing as a receiver. I mean, being a receiver is really important. I mean, I think NFL teams are looking for this kind of smaller back who's, you know, kind of compact and has good speed and can help you in the passing game because frankly, the NFL nowadays is a passing league. And so, I mean, you look at you look at a guy like Alvin Kamara and the the stats he puts up. I mean, there there are other guys in the league who are that type of, I mean, you know, running back. I mean, you look at like a guy like Saquon Barkley, same kind of thing, you know, explosive, explosive. You know, the thing the thing that I really like about Travis Etienne is his footwork is outstanding. I mean, just the way he can make tacklers miss, the way he the way he uses his feet. I mean, he has he has total control. He has total I mean, he's just an athlete on his feet and I think I think that is what what makes him, you know, when the game gets faster, I think that's a that's a point where a guy like Travis Etienne will thrive. Well, if he goes to play for Sean Payton, he will thrive. If he goes to play for somebody like Adam Gase, forget about <laughs> it. You'll never hear from Travis Etienne again. So it depends on on the offensive coaching staff and hopefully he goes to the right team because certainly he brings a skill set that is truly amazing because his acceleration after the catch or through the hole or his elusiveness in the open field, his speed, his ability to to hit that home run, and his receiving ability. It's important, like Ed mentioned, in today's NFL, you have to catch the football as a running back. You have to line up in the slot outside, and Travis Etienne can do that. And we saw that last week's game against Boston College. They put him in the position to succeed. They threw him the ball in the open field or on running back screens and he just took over that game in the second half do you see him as a first round running back he's a good athlete obviously he's going to run somewhere in the high four threes low four fours is he a first round running back well he is a first round quality running back he's a guy who you draft him and he becomes your feature back I think the problem is is that he, he made the very unselfish move to come back for his senior year and win a national championship for the Clemson Tigers, which, I mean, if I'm a coach, I'm going to say, you know, this is, this is the kind of guy I want on my team in my locker room. But at the same time, the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, these guys who these guys who who've had extended workloads don't get drafted as high. I mean, Jonathan Taylor, second round pick, guys like J.K. Dobbins, not not as highly drafted. But you look at a guy like Edward Zeller. I mean, Edward Zeller was a one-year starter at LSU. He had a great year as a one-year starter at LSU, but he got picked in the first round, and I think it was because he was only a one-year starter with only one year of workload. I always like to see when guys improve. Like when Travis Etienne came to Clemson and became a big thing during his freshman season, he was a great receiver, but he was more of a guy that 
can make you miss. Now he is, I'm not saying he's a power back, but he can run over people now. He can break tackles, something that he wasn't able to do as a freshman. It started when he was a sophomore, and he's doing it more this year. He has gotten stronger. His lower body is really good. Like I said, he's not going to run over and truck people like James Conner or Jonathan Taylor, but I like what I see there. I mean, he has really worked on his game. He's a team leader. He's really humble and shy based on the information that I've, I've read about him. Heard a lot of good stories about Travis Etienne, and he is my number one running back in this draft. Obviously, a lot of things can change, and some underclassmen running backs could could do this. But even if you take Chuba Hubbard in the conversation and Najee Harris, Travis Etienne is my top guy. I hope he goes to the right offense. I hope he goes to a team that would be able to utilize him to, to the best of his ability. We'd like to welcome Brian Driscoll of irishbreakdown.com. He covers Notre Dame football. Brian, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on, guys. What has been the key to the Irish success this year? Great defense. I mean, I think that's a big part of it. When you, when, you're, when you play five power five opponents and you hold them to under 10 points a game, which is essentially what the Notre Dame defense is holding teams to, uh, they're a little over 10 on, on the season, but you know, I, I take away that seven points the offense gave up this past weekend against Georgia Tech. And they're holding teams under 10 points a game. To go through half your season and hold opponents under 10 points, and that includes a, a really good Louisville offense that they held to seven points, uh, you're going to be hard to beat. And, and that's certainly what we've seen from this Notre Dame football team. The offense doesn't have – I mean, they scored 12 points against Louisville and won. When you're playing defense at that level, you're going to be really hard to beat. Brian, let's talk about the big game. Obviously, quarterback uh, Trevor Lawrence is not going to play on Saturday. You mentioned Notre Dame has a great defense. Can they slow down Clemson's offense? Well, I, I think so. I mean, look, if, if Notre Dame holds Clemson to single digits like they have through the last four opponents, I'll be shocked, right? So I don't think that's the standard that we're looking for. I think it's can you keep this team in the 20s? You know, can, can you make enough stops? Can you force them on enough, you know, mistakes on third down? Maybe force a turnover or two to, to keep the points down. To, when they get into the red zone, hold them to field goals instead of letting them get touchdowns. I think those are the keys to a game like this. And I think Notre Dame matches up well against Clemson on, you know, with the Notre Dame defense, I think up front. This is a talented but very inexperienced Clemson offensive line that has four new starters. I think that's why their run game has not been as good. You know, Travis Etienne's averaging 5.9 yards per carry, which might be good for a lot of people, but he was at about 7.9 last year and about 8.1 the year before. So that's a pretty big drop off. Uh, you know, so I think Notre Dame matches up well there. I think the big key, the big difference between this Notre Dame defense and the Notre Dame defense two years ago is in 2018, Notre Dame's game records, Julian Aguara, Jerry Tillery, Khalid Kareem, they were all up front. Now, Notre Dame has game records on the back end. They have a game record linebacker in Jeremiah Wusukoromoa. They have a game record at safety, and I think that's something that you need to have to really keep a team like Clemson somewhat in check for four quarters. How good is uh, the young safety, Kyle Hamilton? Been, there's a lot of talented athletic safeties that are sophomores in the country. I think the thing that separates Kyle from those is Kyle's not just physically gifted, he's incredibly intelligent and instinctive. And I think when you have that combination, it allows you to play beyond your years. And I think he's done that. And, and we started to see that really his freshman year, guys. I, I remember being at some of the fall practices. This is back when we were actually allowed on campus and you could go to practices before everything went crazy. Uh, you know, we'd be at practice and he would early the first week of camp, he would just get beat on corner routes and deep out cuts and one-on-ones and just really struggled. And then by the time you got to the end of fall camp, the, the moves they were using to beat him with early, he just wasn't, he wasn't getting beat with. You'd even see it in the game. If, 
if you actually got to step on him on a wheel route, you'd never see him make that mistake again. And that's that's one of the things I think the great players have, especially on defense, is that you, you may beat me once, but you'll never get me on that move again. And I think that's something that we've seen from Kyle. And when you add that with 6'4", 210 pounds, incredible explosiveness, range, it makes you very hard to beat. And so far, nobody's really been able to do that. I mean, going all the way back to his freshman season. Can Notre Dame's offense rise to the challenge and, and deliver a good performance against Clemson? Can they score 30 points? Can they? Yes. Will they? I don't know. I mean, I, I, that's the big question mark. I mean, look, Notre Dame has yet to play really anybody that's, that's good on defense on all three levels. Hits a very good front seven. Cornerbacks are, are suspect. But this is also not a vintage Clemson defense. And, you know, you, you watch Notre Dame, and they've been a puzzle this year. You know, they only scored 27 points on Duke. They only scored 12 on Louisville, who has a terrible defense. They struggle against Georgia Tech. And then they hang 38 offensive points on Pitt, who has by far the best defense they've played all year. I wonder if part of the problem Notre Dame has had is that the, the opponent has been so bad that they've kind of had a hard time maybe matching the intensity that you need in a game like this. So they're capable of it if the offensive line plays at a high level. And if Ian Book plays like we've seen Ian Book play in the past against you know teams like Navy and Boston College and teams like that, if he can play like that against Clemson, yeah, I think Notre Dame absolutely can score between 27 to 30 points. And in this game, that could be good enough to win. It was good enough to win two years ago, and that was a better Clemson team than what Notre Dame is going to face on Saturday. When you look at this game, what's the key matchup that you'll be focusing on? I think there's one on each side of the ball. On offense, it really comes down to the line. That, that's it for me. It's, it's the, if Notre Dame's offensive line doesn't not just hold their own, they've got to win the battle against the Clemson defensive line. It's very talented up front, but it's very young, and Notre Dame's very, is very experienced. And if they can't win the battle up front, it's going to be much harder to take advantage of the, the matchups that Notre Dame has on the perimeter that they could take advantage of. You know, Boston College showed you can throw the ball on this football team. You can get the ball downfield on Clemson, but can you protect the quarterback long enough? Can you establish enough of a run game to keep them honest, to make their safeties come down to the box now that you can take advantage of the down-the-field shots with Tommy Tremble and Michael Mayer? So it really starts up front. And on defense, look, I love watching great players battle against each other, and I cannot wait to watch the chess match between the two coaches that is going to pit Jeremiah Wusu-Koromo and Kyle Hamilton in an attempt to stop Travis Etienne and then what those two – sides of the ball duty to counter each other to try to get ETN going and then Notre Dame trying to keep him from taking the game over because if he doesn't make plays in the run game and pass game, it's a lot harder for this Clemson team to win because they don't have T. Higgins. They don't have Justin Ross. They don't have Hunter Renfro. So if they can keep Travis ETN in check, that's how you keep this game from really getting into a shootout because I don't think Notre Dame can beat Clemson in the shootout. If the Clemson offense is really rolling, I don't think Notre Dame is good enough on offense to do that. So you know, that's where that two, those two game records I talked about, those two All-American caliber players have to be at their best and, and keep Travis Etienne in check. And Clemson doesn't have Trevor Lawrence in this game, so that makes it a little bit easier. I mean, baby Cam was, was good. Well, you know, the thing about Clemson, though, is they're replacing him with another five-star player. You know, it's, it's kind of like what we saw, what was it, uh, 2017 when Notre Dame played Georgia. Well, Jacob Eason got hurt, so they're starting this freshman that's never played in a big game, and Jake Fromm came out, cool, calm, and collected, and that led Georgia to a victory. I think Notre Dame's better now than they were in Game 2 of 2017, but you know, th this is a talented quarterback, and he's got enough around him that he doesn't have to carry the load. And, and what I saw from him against Boston College was a kid that was incredibly calm and poised. So, yes, they don't have Trevor Lawrence. I think he's the best player in the country, but 
with Trevor Lawrence, I think they're the number one team in the country. Without him, they're like, what, number four, number three? You know, they're still really good, and Notre Dame is going to have to be their best. And, and even if they beat Clemson without Trevor Lawrence, to me, it's still a big win because this is a talented football team. Fair enough, but Boston College is not Notre Dame. You know, Notre Dame is not going to allow that comeback in the second half like uh, the BC Eagles did. Bovada has Notre Dame as a six-point underdog against Clemson this weekend. I, I look at it like this, guys. I, I think that this is a game where I understand why Notre Dame is not considered the favorite because when has Notre Dame won a game like this in Brian Kelly's tenure? The answer is they haven't. That They've got to prove that they can win this kind of game. Clemson has won games like this. Clemson's going to be ready. They're always up for games like this. They're always focused, and Notre Dame is going to have to be better on offense than what they've shown. I think they're going to be that. I have Notre Dame winning 27-24. I do predictions based on what should happen, not necessarily, hey, I'm going to throw $100 on this. Uh, that's not that's not how I make predictions. But I think when, Notre, when you look at the matchups, I think Notre Dame is better along both lines. I think Notre Dame has some matchup advantages on offense with the tight ends and the running backs against safeties and linebackers that aren't great against the pass. I think there's opportunities for Notre Dame to go out there and make some big plays, move the chains, and get enough points to beat Clemson because I think this defense is good enough to keep Clemson between 21 to 27 points, which is what they're going to need to keep them to if they're going to have a chance to win this game in the fourth quarter. Uh, Brian Driscoll is here with us. He's a publisher of Irish Breakdown. If Notre Dame loses this game, do you believe they can still make it into the college football playoff with one loss? Oh, absolutely. I think if Notre Dame ends this season with one loss, assuming that one loss isn't a blowout to Clemson in the ACC title game, I'd be shocked if they're not in the college football playoff. And there's a couple reasons for that. Number one is you've got one Power 5 conference that I don't think should and will get consideration, and that's the Pac-12, because they're going to have seven games compared to 12 for everybody else. And I think another conference has all but knocked itself out already, and that's the Big 12. So I think there's going to be a second team from one of the conferences. It's not going to be the Big 10, so it's going to be the SE or the ACC. Well, Georgia's already got a loss. They have to play Florida this weekend, who has a loss. One of them is going to be knocked out. And then one of those two teams is going to have to play Alabama again in the SEC title game. So I think you're going to have a, a, a lot of two-loss teams in the SEC. If Notre Dame can either win this game and then lose a close game in the ACC title game with Trevor Lawrence, or, or, or if they lose this game, then beat Trevor Lawrence in the ACC title game. Either way, as long as it's not an embarrassing blowout and they handle the rest of their business, I think Notre Dame will be a playoff team. What do you think of Ian Book? Um, I think Ian Book is a great kid. I think he's a well-liked member of the football team. I think the players respect him. I think that Ian Book, so far in his career, has been a very mediocre quarterback. I think when Brian Kelly talks about I was 26-3, and I get why Brian Kelly says that, because Ian Book's basically record is tied into Brian Kelly's. And that is that Notre Dame is 39-6 and since the post-2016 makeover. The problem is they've benefited from relatively soft schedules. And Notre Dame is, I think if I'm doing my math correctly, 31-0 uh, and 0 against opponents that finish the season unranked. They're 8-6 and six against teams that finish ranked. And some of those wins include Navy, Northwestern, Syracuse, you know, teams that we're not really fired up about. And they're 0-3 against teams that finish in the top 10. So, you know, Ian Book is 3-3 three and three as a starter against opponents that finish in the top 25. And again, Navy, Syracuse, Northwestern. You don't come to Notre Dame and get evaluated by beating Syracuse, Northwestern, and Navy. You come to Notre Dame and you're held to a standard that's basically, are you able to beat Georgia? Can you beat Clemson? Can you beat Michigan? And so far, Ian Book hasn't been able to do that. This is an opportunity for him to silence a lot of the critics like me who say good player when he's playing against bad teams, but he doesn't step up and play well in the big games and in the big moments. 
And I think the Georgia game last year is a perfect example. You get the ball at midfield with two minutes left with a chance to go down and win a game, and you can't get it done. It wasn't just him, but that's just kind of been, been the MO for this football team. And if you look at the big wins Notre Dame has had since the makeover, a lot of them came early when Brandon Wimbush was the quarterback. You know, USC, Michigan State on the road, Michigan in the home opener of 2018. We just haven't seen those kind of big wins in the last couple of years. And until Ian Book gets one of those wins, and Saturday's a great opportunity for that, there's going to kind of be a, yeah, but who did you beat kind of kind of discussion around him. And I think it's justified. Is this the best offensive line in the country, or at least one of the best? From what I've seen, it is. And I think the reason for that is, is I think this is the most balanced offensive line. You know, Alabama has a tremendous offensive line excellent pass blockers but they're not great run blockers they're very inconsistent in the run game that's a very pass oriented team I think this Notre Dame team has proven to be very good at both and and they're very balanced I think I think to have a great offensive line you have to be really good at offensive tackle and I think Notre Dame is really good at offensive tackle uh and and then of course on the inside you've got some future pros as well so from what I've seen so far it absolutely is and they've played a couple good defensive lines already Pitt has a great defensive line Duke has really good defensive ends so They've gone into those games and more than held their own, and I think won both battles. This is going to be another big test because this is they're, they're young players. You know, when you look at Miles Murphy and Brian Breezy and guys like that, they're young, but they're very talented, and it's good. They're going to benefit from from Tyler Davis not being there. That's their their stud defensive tackle. He won't play, but I think this is not another opportunity for Notre Dame to show that they are the nation's best line. And, and, and guys, to be honest with you, if they don't play like that on Saturday, Notre Dame is going to have a hard time winning this football game. Freshman running back Kyron Williams has had a very promising season thus far. What do you think his career will look like in the future, in his future at Notre Dame? That's a good question. I, and I think Kyron kind of is what he is. And, and that's a good, smart, tough football player that can do a lot of different things. I think that we need to still see if he is a true every down back. You know, again, Notre Dame's played one really good run defense. He didn't play that well in that game. He ran tough, but he, he didn't really produce a whole lot. I want to see if he can kind of do that against the better teams on the schedule. And that's where we're going to find out a little bit about Kyron Williams at the end of the season. And the other part of it is for the next couple of years, he's going to have a really, really, really talented player breathing down his neck and Chris Tyree. So, you know, does Chris Tyree eventually become the, better, the, the number one back? I think that he will. I think Chris Tyree, when he gets the ball, has been even more dynamic Kyron Williams. Uh, I think he's a more natural runner than Kyron Williams. But I, I think the good thing is you have two guys that are very talented that bring – similar skill sets but also have some uniqueness to their game that gives Notre Dame a chance to be really dynamic with a one-two punch the next couple years and to me that's important and we're gonna have a lot of Chris Tyree versus Kyron Williams conversations but you can play both and you can play both a lot and I think that if they both gain more experience you know get bigger and stronger continue to develop in the weight room Notre Dame's got a chance to be absolutely special in the backfield for the next couple years and that's only going to get better next year when Logan Diggs shows up. Uh, Brian Kelly has been here for 11 years at Notre Dame. He's won over 72% of his games. Do you get the feeling that he's here to stay for the long haul, or is he still looking for that next dream job, maybe the NFL? Yeah, Brian Kelly's a hard guy to figure out. I, I you know, Do I think that he would look at the right op- if the right opportunity came along? Yeah, I, I think that he would. I, I think Brian Kelly – I don't think Brian Kelly has the same sort of – affinity for Notre Dame that like a Lou Holtz did where, you know, you, you talk to people, you know, Lou Samoji would tell me this when I was at Blue and Gold Illustrated. I've heard other people talk about this. Lou Holtz was politicking for the Notre Dame job years before he got it. That's the dream. That was a dream job for him. That's a job he wanted. I think for Brian Kelly, this was a great job and a great opportunity. And, and he's obviously worked to, to be successful here, but I don't think it's necessarily been viewed as end all be all. But I also think he's kind of getting to that age where, 
maybe that window is closed. He's going to be 60 years old next year. You know, does he really want to go through the process of going to the NFL and dealing with all of that? Or does he just want to kind of ride off into the sunset? I think we're at the point now where he's ready to ride off under the sunset. But if the right NFL job came open, do I think Brian Kelly would, would listen? Absolutely. Would he take it? I'm less certain of that now than I was a couple of years ago. I'm really curious to see what Brian Kelly does after the 2021 season. He's going to lose a lot of players after that. And then you look at that 2022 schedule, and it's got Ohio State and Clemson and USC, and you got to say, hmm, does he really want to go through a rebuild at 61, 62 years old against that schedule? I don't know. So I think that'll be the offseason that we determine just how serious Brian Kelly is about staying at Notre Dame for the rest of his coaching career. Brian, please tell our listeners where they can find your work. Well, you can find it at irishbreakdown.com. That's our website. We also have a podcast of our own at Irish Breakdown Podcast. And we just launched a YouTube channel. So we have a Irish Breakdown YouTube channel that we just started. So we're going to have a lot of different content, a lot of different avenues and formats in which you can get it. So definitely come check us out. And I appreciate you guys giving me an opportunity to, uh, to tell people what we're doing. Well, congratulations on, on new things and that are opening up for you. And thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, guys. All right. Uh, let's talk about the, the big game in the SEC. Florida against Georgia. And um, according to Bavada, Georgia is a three-and-a-half-point favorite in this game. I'm a believer in the Gators. You know this. Even in the beginning of the season, I've said that the Gators were the team that was going to get to the SEC championship game, and they were kind of the dark horse to get into the, the college football playoff. But they need to have this game. They need to beat Georgia. It's a neutral site. It's in Jacksonville. Do you give the edge to Georgia? I mean, you're going to be stubborn enough. Stetson Bennett looked really bad against Kentucky. Well, here's the thing, though, is that Georgia Georgia's defense is very good. I mean, they play a very good team defense. I, I think that's that's really what makes the difference. I mean, Florida, Florida's had some problems. They've had some bad luck. I mean, they had a coronavirus outbreak. Um, you know, they've lost some games they should have won. I, I'm a little I'm a little quelled on the on the Florida hype. Obviously, talking to you, I mean, I I, I was a little bit more excited. You know, with with the Florida Gators at the beginning of the season, you do you do bring up a good point about Stetson Bennett. I mean, he he is very much an average quarterback. I mean, he's not a he's not he's not a guy who's going to win games for you. I don't I don't know if he's necessarily the quarterback that's not going to lose games for you. But to be honest with you, when you talk about Georgia's roster, I mean, Georgia's roster is just better than Florida's roster. You know, and and, and Georgia has the experience. I mean, Kirby Smart has played in big games before. They they sort of seem to have Florida's number a little bit. This is why I'm going to go with the Georgia Bulldogs. Let's make this clear. I mean, obviously, I'm not arguing the fact that that Georgia has has a great defense, and and they do. They're elite. They can stop people, and they've done it. But they have to score more points than what they did against Kentucky. I mean, it was a 14-3 game, and Kentucky isn't a very good team. I do give you that. Georgia has a much better defense than Florida, and Florida has struggled stopping people this year. But Kyle Trask has only thrown two picks in four games. He's a guy that makes good decisions. He's accurate. He takes care of the ball. And usually in games like this, it comes down to the fourth quarter, who can make the big play? 
even though Georgia ran the ball better last week, I don't see that they're just going to dominate. I, I realize what Kirby Smart wants to do. He wants to run the football. He wants to keep Kyle Trask on the sideline. He, he wants to play good defense. That's going to be the formula for the Georgia Bulldogs this week. But I just feel like Kyle Trask will make the plays in the fourth quarter. The guy comes to play. He's accurate, he puts the ball in the money, and he's a good college quarterback. And he's got the weapons as well. Kyle Pitts, Kadarius Toney, Travon Grimes. They've got weapons on the outside. It's not only Pitts. And these guys are stepping up. And Georgia has a good secondary, but I think Kyle Trask is going to be able to to pick them apart. Kyle Trask is a little bit of a wild card. I mean, I just... I, you know, they, they, put, they put him kind of in that first round category of the draft, and I'm just, I'm not ready to put him there yet. I mean, I just, I, I want, I, I mean, I'll admit, I want to go back and see the tape a little bit more, but I don't know if, you know, I mean, Kyle Trask, I see, see him more of as like kind of a system quarterback. I mean, he's not, he's not a guy who's going to go out there and just dominate a team like Georgia, you know, he's not going to go out there and put up 50 points against Georgia. He's not, he's, he's not a Trevor Lawrence. He's not a, Justin Fields, he's not even a Trey Lance, but teams always look for that quarterback at the end of the first round, and they reach for them, and Kyle Trask certainly has that upside. This is a guy that hasn't played since his sophomore year of high school. He was on the bench. He was a backup quarterback to Derek King in Texas. Let's not forget that he's only started for one year. This hasn't even been a full year. He'll start for two years at the end of this, so Trask is a guy that has upside. He's not a finished product by any means because he hasn't played that much football since he's been 15 years old. I mean, most guys are are starting quarterbacks here. So he's got a unique story, so you got to look at him in a, in a different way, knowing that he's 22-23 but with upside, kind of like Joe Burrow, to be honest with you. I'm sure this time of the year, a lot of people were questioning whether Joe Burrow was a first-round pick. Kyle Trask needs this win. For the Gators and for himself in order to to boost his stock. He needs to show that that he can come up and, and win that big game. And this is what the Gators need in order for them to, to take that next step along with the Alabamas and the Georgias in this league. Last week, I got excited with the Michigan Wolverines. I was like, I was asking you questions, Ed. I was like, are they back? Jim Harbaugh has got this thing rolling. I didn't pick them, so that means they're going to do well this year in the Big Ten. Well, they went down to the Michigan State Spartans, and and Mel Tucker led them to to a big-time win against the Wolverines. I would say Michigan is the most unpredictable team in college football. I mean, just the fact that they, you know, can come out and win these big games and you know, then then come out and lose to a team like Michigan State. Sure, Michigan State has, you know, circled this game on their calendar, really wanted to win this game, but I think Michigan is 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 a real wild card. I mean, they were a real wild card last year, but to be honest, I don't I don't see them, you know, being like that team that's gonna challenge a team like Ohio State. It really, really looks like Ohio State is gonna run away with the Big Ten. Well, Michigan's secondary struggled against the Spartans wide receivers. I also expected the Wolverines to run the ball better against Michigan State, and they didn't. They, they struggled in that department. And they looked really lackadaisical at the end. They were down by 10 points, and it looked like Joe Milton was 
it wasn't a hurry-up offense by any means. It was almost like Michigan Wolverines were at the beach and they were, like, throwing the football around at the end of the game. Like, they were running out the clock or something like that. It wasn't... There wasn't any urgency with the Wolverines' offense at the end of the game when they were down by 10 points. And that's disappointing, to to say the least. Let's talk about the Big 12. Uh, Oklahoma State was kind of that Cinderella team that a lot of people looked to and said, hey, they're playing good defense. I mean, they, they have the weapons on offense. They can do some things. Not only can they win the Big 12, but they could maybe get to the college football playoff. Well, Texas Longhorns beat the Oklahoma State Cowboys in overtime. The Longhorns trailed 31-20 to with over eight minutes to go in the third quarter, and that return kickoff for a touchdown was kind of the catalyst in this comeback when Texas cut the lead to five. The victory for Texas was the first road win over a team ranked in the top 10 since 2010. What happened to the Oklahoma State Cowboys? I know you were high on them, Ed, but many other people were as well. Well, I I think they turned the ball over four times against a team like Texas. And when you turn the ball over four times a team like Texas and Texas doesn't turn the ball over, they win games like this. The Oklahoma State Cowboys, they beat themselves this game. Um, and and it's, a really, it's really a tough loss to swallow because, to be honest with you, they were, they were in the driver's seat, and now, now it's really just a wide-open Big 12. I mean, there's really like five teams that could win this conference. According to Bovada, Oklahoma State is a 12.5-point favorite at Kansas State, and uh, that's the big game this week in the Big 12. You mentioned, I mean, it's really a tight race. There are a lot of teams that could still take it. Iowa State and Kansas State are 4-2 and two right now. They're tied in, at the top. Oklahoma State is 4-1, and one. and then we have Oklahoma, Texas, West Virginia. All three of these teams are 4-2 and two as well. The only difference is there's they're three and two in the Big Twelve Conference. So who's your pick? I mean, are you sticking with the Oklahoma State Cowboys? Who are you going with in this conference? I, I'm actually I'm I'm going to surprise you a little bit. I think I'm think I'm liking what I'm seeing from the Iowa State Cyclones. Brock Purdy, I think he's played well enough to make this team a winner. If if you look at it right now, I mean they they you know a lot of these teams have two losses. But, I mean, one of Iowa State's losses was a non-conference game against Louisiana. Their their schedule looks pretty favorable. I mean, if Iowa State can get over Texas, I think this is Iowa State's division. Interesting, the, the fact that you're going. So you're you're on the Brees Hall-Brock Purdy bandwagon, right? At this point, you've changed your mind. I mean, you're you're off the Oklahoma State Cowboys bandwagon. Yeah, I mean, just you know, when you when you when you turn over the ball four times against a team like Texas, I mean, it shows they can't play in big games. I mean, this was this was Oklahoma State's chance to win, and to be honest with you, they had to win this Texas game to really solidify where they you know that they were the team. And I mean, they, they I mean they were really in the college football playoffs conversation, and they were really in the driver's seat. I mean, for them to for them to lose this game against Texas was. I mean, I'm not saying Texas is any pushover, but can't turn the ball over four times in this type of game. I'm going to go with Oklahoma Sooners. I just think they'll win it again. Spencer Rattler is playing a lot better since that Texas game when he got pulled in the first half. He returned in the second half and just looked like a different animal, and he has continued that. 
The Oklahoma Sooners have so many weapons at the wide receiver position. They seem to be rolling these guys out. I mean, they're freshmen, they're sophomore, and they're just different guys. It's like, we don't need CeeDee Lamb. We've got new guys like Marvin Mims. And they've won three straight games. They play Oklahoma State Cowboys at home, and that's their the biggest opponent that they're going to play down the road. That's their only real challenge. I'm going to go with the Sooners. I think when it's all said and done, once again, Lincoln Riley will. He won't have him in the college football playoff because I think two losses is just too much, even with this season that we have this year. But I do believe that the Oklahoma Sooners will take this division. Alan Blondin joins us. He covers Coastal Carolina football for the Sun News in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Alan, welcome to the show. Yes, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been a remarkable turnaround for the football program, going from the FCS level to the Sun Belt to being undefeated so far this season. It's been amazing. Talk about this season so far. Yeah, it's absolutely been amazing. Um, you know, this is only their fourth year in the Sun Belt. The first uh, three were still kind of transitioning from F, uh, the FCS level to the FCS level. You know, they went three and nine and five and seven, five and seven. Uh, the last three years, they've been a consistent two and six in the conference for all three straight years that they've been in it. And then all of a sudden this year, you know, they, they just, uh, they, they start out the year with a win over Kansas, which they, they won last year at Kansas, but this year they get out to a 28 to nothing lead, but really good. They haven't looked back. They haven't slowed down. Um, the only close game they've had really was uh, Louisiana, which, at the time was ranked 21st in the country and they pulled out a field goal uh, win there on the road and otherwise um, they've really just been a dominating team what's been the key to coastal carolina's success this year uh, at least a couple things um one is they have a lot of senior they have a lot of talented players and a lot of uh senior experienced mature guys on defense their defensive line their linebackers particularly are four- and five-year guys that um, are all pretty talented and they all provide a lot of leadership. So they thought they would have the best front seven in the conference before the season started. They weren't shy about talking about it, that they thought they'd have the best front seven, and it appears that they do. Um, So that's been a big part of it. Um, They've got a great pass rush. Um, You know, they've got those two middle linebackers that uh, run the defense, make a ton of tackles, get everybody in the right position. And then the surprise part of it was um, when they started a redshirt freshman quarterback first game, they, they've got two, two quarterbacks on the roster that are juniors that both started a minimum of eight games in the first two years. Fred Jackson has started 10. Bryce Carpenter started eight. So they had what you thought was uh, two experienced guys who were going to compete for the starting job. And in the first game, Jamie Chadwell kind of shocked everybody through a redshirt freshman in there named Grayson McCall. And uh, he's, one of the top-rated quarterbacks in the country through six games. Can you tell me more about Grayson McCall, their uh, freshman quarterback? Jamie Tadwell, the head coach of Coast Carolina, has a policy of not allowing freshmen to speak to the media, so we have yet to speak to Grayson McCall. It's not unprecedented to have that policy. I know a lot of other coaches have. And matter of fact, Kevin Sumlin had it uh, the year that Johnny Manziel won the Heisman Trophy. Johnny Manziel did not speak to the media until the season was the regular season was over. I, I ended up speaking to, for a feature story, I spoke to his uh, high school coach, a couple of his high school coaches and his mom, and 
Um, it appears what's, what's really uh, benefited Coastal is that he came from a uh, high school program that had uh, nearly the exact uh, offense that Coastal had. It's like a spread, triple option spread with some RPOs. And he had three years of starting experience in that. And in speaking to his high school coaches, they were excited when Coastal showed interest in him and offered him a scholarship because they thought he would be the perfect fit for this offense based on the three years he had in their program. And uh, it's, uh, it's come to fruition. He's, he makes every right decision. He's on time with everything. Um, he just runs the offense nearly flawless. But it was a crazy offseason for all the college football programs out there. They didn't have a normal spring practice. It was canceled for most programs out there. Are you surprised that they still went with the retro freshman quarterback who didn't have any starting experience in college? Well, one thing, uh, Jamie, for whatever reason, chose to go early with spring practice. It went in February. Uh, their last, I think their spring game was March 5th or something like that. So they actually got all of their spring practice in, and he did show them some things there. And he's a red freshman. You know, he'd been in the program last year. He played in four games, you know, threw a couple passes. Didn't do a whole lot. He threw four passes. Um, and then apparently he looked really good in the spring. Um, he did miss the entire month of July almost with uh, being in quarantine for COVID issues. Um, but when he did get into spring tra- uh, to, to a preseason fall camp, Fred Payton, who was as I, one of the guys I'd mentioned previous, he was considered, you know, the go-to guy for the start this year. He had a, an Achilles injury for a couple of weeks. He was very limited in practice. That allowed Grayson to get a lot more snaps with the first team. And apparently over those couple of weeks, he showed the uh, the offensive staff all they needed to see to, to supplant Fred Payton as a starting quarterback. I talked to a few of the players this offseason from Coastal, C.J. Marable, uh, Teddy Gallagher, Teron Jackson, and they all had this inner confidence that they would do great things in 2020. They talked about how they lost a lot of close games last year and that they weren't going to allow it to happen this year. Where did this belief come from? Did it come from the head coach? Did it come from that coaching staff? Or just seniors were fed up of losing and they just they figured they were going to get it done this year? Yeah, well, particularly, as you mentioned, Teddy Gallagher and Teron Jackson, those are two of those older, experienced, mature, you know, talented players on defense that the best defensive front seven in the conference. Start That started their confidence right there. You know, they got uh, one of the big things they got, Silas Kelly, one of those two middle linebackers, he missed the year last year, or most of them, he played in a game and a half before he, he uh, blew his knee out. Um, he came back full strength, so that, that added some confidence. You know, the, the, you mentioned the close losses. They came into the season with a mantra of the number 24. It was uh, That stems from they lost five games last year by a total of 24 points. And they looked, at, you know, by looking at film and showing the players, all five of these games are winnable. We don't make this mistake. We don't make that mistake. We pay more attention to these little details. We can maybe win all five of these games that we lost, and instead of going – five and seven we go ten and two they convinced them of that uh that was part of their push going into the season and uh, that's probably part of the belief in the fact that they knew they could do something this year what can you tell me about the culture of this team that seems to like to have a lot of fun there is no team in college football that has as much fun as this team when they're winning there's no doubt there's no, i can't imagine anybody having more fun than this team when they're winning so and, and again the personalities of gallagher and silas kelly those are two of the guys that are kind of leading the, uh, you know, leading the fun after each game. 
they've called out uh, a couple ESPN guys for picking against them, and they've had banner back and forth on Twitter, and those videos have gone viral, and then they had this outrageous wrestling production after a win where they're dropping a, an elbow off a top rope onto the Eagle, the uh, Georgia Southern Eagle mascot. I mean, I, things you don't generally see in, like, say, Nick Saban's locker room after a win. And one thing they do is they play for a different trophy each game. That That's kind of where all that the celebrations stem from. They Chadwell assigns a different coach over the course of the season a different game to come up with a trophy that they play for that's specific to the other team. And um, so in the locker room, if they win, they get the chance to uh, accept that trophy. And it, it's not always uh, in the form of, um, you know, an inanimate object. In, in the case of uh, Charleston Southern, their coach sometimes celebrates wins with something he calls a people's elbow where he drops an elbow on a chair in the locker room. So they went off of that and came up with this elaborate wrestling production. And that's where some of their fun stems from is that individual trophy each week. And each coach seems to be trying to outdo the past one with their, the level of their celebration. Alan, behind every successful football program, there's a very strong head coach in charge. Tell me, what has Jamie Chadwell brought to this program? Jamie, for one, was handpicked as the successor of Joe Moglia, Joe, um, who, you know, had the team ranked uh, number one in the FCS for 10 weeks over a few years and, you know, had them in the playoffs every year at the FCS level prior to Coastal Green to move up to FBS. He, he, he brought Jamie in as an offensive coordinator. They, were, they had played each other uh, when Jamie was at Charleston Southern. Joe had recognized uh, the leadership qualities that he, he, he wanted to see, and Jamie was handpicked. Joe even stepped down one or two years early, probably, to give Jamie the reins early, uh, that earlier than he had to. And Joe's still the, the chairman of athletics and the executive director of football at Coastal, so he's still there. But he basically saw Jamie's a, a lot about faith, a lot about family, and, you know, he's had success everywhere he's gone. And Joe, Joe basically handpicked him, made him uh, – stepped down a little early for him to take over. And they had some defections when Jamie first took over. Uh, like a dozen guys entered the transfer portal that first year. But everybody that did stick with him stayed for a reason. They must have believed in uh, what he, what his vision was and what he, what he wanted to do moving forward. And it's played out even faster than uh, I'm sure Jamie and the players thought it would actually play out. You already mentioned that this front seven is the driving force behind the, the success that Coastal has had this year, and you mentioned that they're the best in the Sun Belt. Would you put this front seven above anybody else in the country? I mean, can they match up with, with those defenses? You can say they're the best in the conference. It, it's hard to put them you know, any farther than that when it comes to um, you know some of the you know, Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State teams that recruit four and five, you know, minimum four stars, usually five-star players, where Coastal's recruiting at best three-star players. Now, these guys have developed. They've got, they believe they have one or two and maybe three NFL guys on that defense, but uh, Alabama's got probably six, and, and those guys are going to be drafted higher. You can't, I can't go there with that, but they are, they've got, they've got the pass rush on both sides you want. They've got the run stoppers in the middle. They've got the smart linebackers that can run the field. And their secondary really hasn't been tested that much because they constantly get enough pressure on quarterbacks that uh, the defensive backs don't have to cover very long. If, if one day that front seven is completely blocked, you know, they could be vulnerable in the secondary, but we don't, we don't know that yet. 
It's truly a remarkable story. How does the play-by-play announcer become the athletic director at Coastal? Yeah, that, that's true. Yeah, and again, that was somewhat early in the, you know, they were still FCS. But yeah, Matt, Matt Holt, who's the AD, yeah, he was, uh, he's just obviously a smart guy. He was a play-by-play guy, you know, kind of SID type situation. And yeah, he did. He, he worked his way into the AD position. It's hard to argue with the success. They've won a national baseball championship. Uh, with him as the AD, they're now uh, the number 15 team in the, in the country in football, so uh, they apparently are doing something right. Alan, do you see a roadblock for, for Coastal ahead? Can they go undefeated, or do you see App State that, that's going to pose uh, the biggest threat to them in the Sun Belt? Yeah, I mean, App State, they're the bully of the conference. You know, they've, they've handily beaten Coastal, and all of their, you know, Coastal was hanging with them in the third quarter last year, but in reality, they've handled Coastal pretty easily in all of their games that they played since Coastal's moved up. You can't assume that, you know, Coastal's still a young program and, you know, they could have a hiccup here or there. But the way, they, the way they've looked, the way they were so dominant against Georgia State, you would have to assume that they should win. You know, they've got uh, Troy. Uh, this week they've got South Alabama. They've got Troy. They've got a Texas State team that's 1-7. and seven. Coming up, the only other team is they've got App State at home on November 21st. And, you know, the thing about it is that that, that game could ruin all of their goals uh, because they're both in the East Division. If App only finished with, with one loss in the conference and they beat Coastal, they would then play for the, the conference championship. And, you know, all the spoils that come to the conference champion, they would have the opportunity to get. So that's going to be the game, I believe. It's going to come down to beating App State and, I would expect that to be a very, very, very uh, hard fought and close game um, that should come down to the end. And it, uh, it would be, it's going to be an exciting game to watch as long as Coastal takes care of their business this week and next week at Troy. Well, let's hope the, the Cinderella story continues. It's been fun watching uh, those couple of linebackers on the football field on, on Twitter, and it's been great. Alan, please tell our listeners where they can find your work. My writing is on uh, MyrtleBeachOnline.com. That's the Sun News' website, MyrtleBeachOnline.com. Uh, the easiest place to find it, though, however, is uh, on my Twitter page feed. I, I obviously post all the stories I write. So if you want to go back and look at all the, the shenanigans of the Coastal uh, football team, that, that's all posted through my Twitter page also. So that's uh, my name. It's uh, first and last, Alan Blondin, A-L-A-N-C-L-O-N-D-I-N. Alan Blondin on uh, Twitter. Alan, thanks for being with us. We appreciate it. We would like to thank Brian Driscoll and Alan Blondin for joining us on this week's show. You were listening to Blitzcast. Take care.